God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and God of West Park Baptist Church, we implore you that our hearts would now be quieted to hear your word. You've written it. You originally spoke it for our good. Deliver us once again from the selfishness that's still in our hearts. Deliver us once again from the captivity to our pride. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that amidst all our days this week, you have not stopped loving us. And it's evident that if we are still breathing today and we are here in this gathering, assembled as your people, the only evidence points to that you love us. And, and we, we thank you. God, thank you for your grace. Grace that comes to the undeserving. Grace that comes to those humbled. And so I pray you would humble us further today so that we might more richly enjoy you and worship and love you. And you are worthy. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. If you would, have your Bibles open to Luke chapter 1. I will be preaching this morning from verses 26 to 38. But I would like to begin this morning with a question for you. What Christmas movie would you most like to be stuck in? Sorry if that's not what you were expecting, but it's been on my mind since our staff Christmas party this past week. Um, we actually had a come to the staff party in your pajamas kind of party. And I want to tell you, your distinguished lead pastor of 33 years won the award for best dressed. <laughs> You've never seen him looking finer than in his sweats and his robe and a Santa hat. But this question was on the table among many questions of icebreakers, and thankfully our staff doesn't tend to need icebreaker questions. We've gotten to know each other and joke around and love each other. Um, but it's funny to think, if you were stuck in a Christmas movie, what might it be like? And so since our party, I've had a little bit of time to muse over this question, and I have some scenarios for you, and we'll see if one of these might be where you'd like to be stuck. There's the classic movie. You're, you're down on your luck, stuck in a crummy old town. You marry the girl next door, take hit after hit from the crusty old banker, lose all your money, try to end your life, meet an angel with ulterior motives, see life as if you've never been born, end up finding yourself and Zuzu's petals <laughs> in reality once again, and you realize you're already the richest man in town. The moral, the magic of Christmas is all around you and your friends and family. You're already the richest person you know. What a magical Christmas that would be if you were stuck there. Then there's this movie, the Santa movie. They're all kind of the same. You know, you're, you're a kid who's, maybe one of your parents has just died or they've just divorced and you're a little bit too old to believe in Santa Claus, but nonetheless, you stay up late on Christmas Eve and you, you hear a noise on your roof and you go out and you see a, a sleigh and reindeer on the roof. So you get a ladder and you go up there and find that Santa is stuck in the chimney. So you hook up the sleigh to Santa and you back him out of there and you pop him out and he comes out and he's so impressed with your ingenuity and cleverness that he invites you to travel around the world with him that night 
bringing joy and Christmas magic to everyone. And if it hadn't been for you, Christmas would have been lost. And the moral of that kind of movie, the magic of Christmas is believing in Christmas. I don't know, sorry, that one, you gotta, you gotta roll with me here. I, I tried to make that profound, it's just silly. All right, but then there's, then there's the Hallmark movie. You're a single person <laughs> who has chosen business over relationships. You go home to help your widowed mother and work on her Christmas tree farm, even though you hate Christmas. By the way, you take that bit out and it could be any Hallmark movie I'm describing here. But there's, a, there's an attractive, significant other who's not in your same social class working for your mother as well. And even though you hit a few relational speed bumps along the way, you end up loving Christmas because you fell in love. The moral, the magic of Christmas is in falling in love. I thought about for you guys sticking you in a skyscraper with terrorists taking over, and, but I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to go there. You know, what's the, what's the point of all these movies? And, and if you're anything like me, you've watched quite a few movies in your day, and especially around Christmas time, you have a few favorites that you bring out or find available to stream or download, whatever you might do. And what I see as a main theme throughout all these movies is this tendency that we get this sense the Christmas season is a magical time when all of our life's problems get put on pause and everything is good and okay. Or that it's even possible for the magic of Christmas to make everything miserable about your life magically better. And what I find this time of year and the stories that I hear, even in our own congregation, is that things don't get put on pause. Suffering doesn't stop. Even relational tensions doesn't stop. It sometimes gets exacerbated and made worse over this time of year. And the statistic always remains true that those pursuing divorce tend to put it on pause this time of year only to pick it up in January when the divorce rates go significantly higher. I'm concerned for all of us that at this time of year, what we need most is not the magic of Christmas. It's not. But what we need is the divine miracle of Advent. The miracle of Advent. There's actually a better story to put yourself into. And if you could be a fly on the wall when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary and delivered to her the life-changing announcement of the birth of Jesus. And to hear that story again today is the miracle that we, every one of us, needs. And at this time of year, this Advent season, what we need most is not magic to make our lives a little bit shinier and better, but a miracle to invade so that we know the living God and have the only sure foundation that is even possible for us this side of heaven. God speaks with such authority and there's three things I want you to notice in this story today 
about the angel's announcement to Mary. And they are these things, God's grace, God's son, and God's word. These are the markers that take us through this story. And I'm looking at it through the lens of God. Two years ago, I preached this same passage, and Sam and I realized that this week. And at that point, I took it from the perspective more of Mary and what Mary realized and what Mary knew. I didn't know if I could teach this again and what I would say, but the Bible never runs out of divine material because God wants us to keep learning and keep being refreshed. This time around, as I looked at it again, I could see God popping out. God is the one at the star, at the center of this story. And like Pastor Sam shared with us at the beginning of our Luke series last week, all of history is his story. And this is just another point along the way when he shines with his grace, with his son, and through his word. So let's look again at the text. Looking at God's grace in focus, we look at verses 26 to 30. Look at those verses again with me now. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth. We'll stop there for just a moment. What is this the sixth month of? The sixth month of the year? No, in the context, you learn that this is the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy. Last week, the text was about the angel Gabriel's announcement to Zechariah in the temple that he and his wife Elizabeth would have a son. This would end up being John the Baptist. And it was strange to Zechariah to get this kind of announcement from God because by this point he was quite elderly and Elizabeth was quite elderly. Yet God did this, what no one else expected could ever happen. And Elizabeth became pregnant. She secluded herself for several months and what she reasoned and meditated in her heart was this, God has shown favor to me, and he's taken away my disgrace from among people. And now she is in her sixth month, and God is still on his time schedule, unveiling the next part of his plan. And he dispatches Gabriel from his presence. Gabriel is the consistent messenger all throughout the Bible. We know he's just appeared to Zechariah, but the last time he appeared to anyone was about 500 years before that when he appeared to the prophet Daniel and unveiled to him God's plan for the end of time and culminating his glory throughout the world. And now Gabriel gets his next assignment. Where is he going? Is it to the power centers of the world? Is it to the legal leaders of the world? Is it to the king? No, it's out in the boonies. Nowheresville, where no one ever goes. And even today, if you were to go to this town, it's not much bigger, and the only thing of significance there is the church dedicated to Mary. Nazareth. It's kind of an armpit of Galilee. But there were people there who knew and loved the Lord. Mary was one of them. How do we find out about her? Well, before her name is even mentioned, here are the things that we find out about her. Verse 27, Gabriel was sent to a virgin. That word is mentioned three times in this whole account, and that repetition 
gives us the indication that this is a very significant thing to remember about her. One of the reasons that she is a virgin is because she is quite young. Uh, I am amazed by this every time I study it. Most conservative scholars say that Mary was between the ages of 12 to 14 at this time. And just think about that. This is a, a young person that has just exited childhood and is ready to enter the phase of adulthood. Teenagers, think about this. They didn't have teenage years back then. <laughs> you were a child, and then you grew up really fast. Sometimes I think to us it might sound so odd. A 13-year-old engaged to be married? Two years later, married? In that time, there was no you know, time to be a child, and then time to be immature and goof off and then time to get responsible. Get responsible really fast because you were about to get married. So she knew this, but she was a virgin as well because she was sexually pure. She had not known a man intimately in any way. Now, it says about her further, she was betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. This is another thing that I noted about her this time through studying the text. Before we learn her name, we learn the situation for her biologically and relationally, and we learn where her world is wrapped up. I mean, in this society, her hope is to get married and to have children, to listen to the Torah as it's taught in the local synagogue, probably not able to read herself, but listen and hear the stories of God, and then to tell them to her own children. I believe Mary was very well versed in these stories, the stories of Noah and Abraham, of the judges like Gideon and Samson, of Elijah and Elisha, of King David. Ultimately, the thing she hears from the angel Gabriel and his announcement made sense to her, and she connected them so that the message itself was not undecipherable, but the strangeness of why he was saying it to her was what confounded her. Mary, likewise, had a viewpoint that she did not have of herself just yet. In verse 28, the angel says to her, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. You may know that every day when you look in the mirror, you have a certain view of yourself, and you get an idea of who you are. But if you could step out of yourself for just a minute and see yourself like God sees you, what would he see? If God could send an angel to address you with a wholly important message and would greet you in a certain way, how would he greet you? What I want to share with you is that if you belong to God and have committed your life to him and turned from your sin, and you know you have no hope without Jesus Christ, when he comes to you, he would say the same thing. Greetings, oh favored one. And do you know what this means? Favor is the word in Greek, charis, which is our word grace. Greetings, one who has the grace of God. Greetings one who stands in the grace of God. The Lord is with you. Both of those things, I think, 
confounded Mary. The last time I record or I see anyone saying the Lord is with you was when the angel said it to Gideon in the Old Testament in the time of the judges. Gideon was hiding from the enemy. And the angel appears to him and says, greetings, mighty one. The Lord is with you. And to hear that then or to hear it in the time of Mary or to hear it now, I can imagine we would be like Mary, a little bit confused. The Lord is with me? Me? Favor? Grace? Really? Not a lack of belief, but staggering to know how those things could be yours. I think Mary was right there. Verse 29 tells us she was greatly troubled, not by the angel, but at the saying. I do wonder how Gabriel appeared to Mary. She knew he was an angel. And whether he was glowing a bit more than usual, whether he was hovering about a foot off the ground and speaking to her, I don't know. Movies try to capture it and do it justice one way or the other. But the point is, Mary is not greatly troubled, as people in the Bible often are, by the appearance of an angel. Her trouble results from her inability to figure out why this message should be coming to her. And this is at the heart of the passage and why it's so important as we emphasize God's grace. The angel knows what Mary is thinking, and he says to her, do not be afraid, Mary. And once again, gives her this message, for you have found favor with God. Now, Mary is so unique, and there's no one that's going to be like Mary ever again. I don't see any evidence in the Bible that another virgin birth is on the, on the book, in the books, ready to come, right? I don't think that's ever going to happen again because of the uniqueness of her son, Jesus. So in one, on the one hand, none of this is ever reproducible in any of our lives, and Mary did receive grace from God. And this isn't the way that some have erroneously translated this text, hail Mary full of grace. It doesn't mean that Mary was already full of grace. It means that God in his freedom, just like he did for Noah, when the same phrase is used back in Genesis chapter 6, verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of God. That means God in his freedom loved Noah. And God, in his great freedom, loved Mary. This is majestic and holy. But my friends, as unique as the situation was for Mary, this is how God works. He shows grace to those who know they don't deserve it, to those who are humbled and beaten down by their own choices and by the choices of others to them. God delights to show favor to the humble. And that's a theme that will come out again and again as we study this passage. And so one point of application here is that I want you to not try to fix your life this time of year or any time of year. If your life feels broken, if your life seems, no matter what you do, to shatter and fall apart. You are in a place that God delights to appear. 
you are in the spot where only God can show up and show favor as he delights to do. Believe in his character, that he is the God of all grace and that he gives undeserved love, unearned favor to those in whom he delights. Humbly receive this good news today. Secondly, the miracle really happens when God announces what he's going to do to bring his son into the world. Those are the next few verses, verses 31 to 35. The verses there say, as the angel continues, and behold, Mary, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Here's the news. The long-awaited Messiah is coming, and he's coming in a way that no one would have ever expected, through the womb of a virgin. We're going to talk about how that's even possible here in just a little bit. But at this point, the angel reveals Mary, the virgin, will conceive in her womb and have a son, and she's told what God wants the son's name to be. It's Jesus. This is the Hebrew Joshua. Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh saves. This is to be his name. He will bring salvation when he comes. Now, he gives us some other points that help us to know who this particular son was going to be. Because admittedly, there were many Joshuas running around. There were many Jesuses running around at that time, even in Nazareth of Galilee. So what would make this one special? Well, as the angel continues, this is what he says. He will be great. This is the angelic understatement of a lifetime. He will be great, and he will be the son of the Most High, called the son of the Most High. You think about greatness just for a minute. I love to watch somebody who's great at something. You know, over this weekend, this past Friday night, I had a front row seat to watch the Christmas at West Park program, and there are up here, this is full of people who are great at their instruments, with their voices, and they're using those well and excellently to the glory of God for our edification. And at some points, we just look and say, wow, they're great at that. We love greatness. We admire when the greatness is on display by those who are supposed to be leading us, who are supposed to be in charge. When they do their job well, we can get behind that and we can follow and support. I think of one man, though, who was a ruler who took things too far. And in the Old Testament, it's the man Nebuchadnezzar. Have you ever heard of that guy? Nebuchadnezzar went down into Israel and took into captivity Judah and took them back into Babylon. And when they got to Babylon... Life there, as they would find in this new city, was organized, it was beautiful, and in many ways, Nebuchadnezzar was the king of all, as he conquered and that no one could be his rival. But one time, 
he was prof- somebody prophesied about him, Daniel, that he would go a bit crazy and that he would charge out of the palace, that he would eat grass for seven years and live like a cow. And you know what? That's what happened to him. And at the end of that time, his senses came back to him. And I'm sure they had to trim his nails and cut his mangy hair and clothe him again rightly. And he came back and he sent out an edict into his whole kingdom. And he gave testimony that God most high ruled over the kingdoms of men. His understanding after all that time of humbling was that there is, that there is no one like the most high God. There is no one who compares to him. Now, this is to be the son of the Most High. Many people in the Old Testament are called the sons of the Most High, particularly Israelites. That's a term that is used of them. So as Mary is hearing these things, she may be thinking already, Jesus, I understand that. I know a few Jesuses. I've played with a few. I just now stopped playing with them. And son of the Most High, I get that theologically, teaching what the rabbis do. They've told us that we are God's sons and he is the most high. Well, what makes this one unique is what the angel says next. And each of these points are to turn our hearts back to affection and praise to the son. The next thing he says is that he will be king forever. God's son, king forever. If you look at those verses there, verses 32 and 33. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, this Jesus, who is Son of the Most High, has another way of, under, of, of being described here. He will be king, following after his father David, and ruling on his throne. It says that he will be king over Judah forever. And it says of his kingdom there will be no end. This is a way of saying that he will be king forever. This is the angel paraphrasing as he does 2 Samuel 7, 8 to 16, which I won't read now. But 2 Samuel 7 is a key passage of the Davidic covenant. When God promised King David, you will always have a man, you will always have a son to sit on your throne. And he will be a son to me. And he will reign forever. Now, Solomon didn't do that. Rehoboam didn't do that. And all of the sons of David, up until the time of the deportation of the northern and the southern kingdoms, didn't do that. Yet God had preserved a line for his son from the line of David so that he would be born and that one day he would take the throne and prove that there was no king before him or after him who could match him in his splendor and his majesty and in his longevity, and in his ability to rule. Don't be deceived there thinking that when it says he will reign over the house of Jacob or Israel forever, that that excludes you and me. If you can be king long enough, 
then all your enemies will die, and you alone will reign, and all those who are in your kingdom will be safe and under your rule. There will be no competitors. There will be no rivals. Jesus would be that king. And it says that his kingdom would have no end. I want to give you a couple of encouraging points at this point about government. I know that if you think about leadership and government, if you're like me, you're a bit disappointed at this point in life. When I look at world news, there are people all over the world who are revolting against their governments because of decisions that they're making. Riots in Hong Kong. Riots in France. Riots in Haiti. And in our own country, a, a prolonged hearing about the trustworthiness of our own leader here in the United States. What does this do to us? Perhaps it causes us to be cynical about the use of government at all or at least about what kind of government we need. I'm telling you what we are shooting for is a monarchy, but not a monarchy of a human king alone, a monarchy of one who rules with all authority, who rules with perfect justice, who makes decisions by the spirit of God for the people's good and does so 100% of the time. We need this king. And this is the king that is proclaimed here. Now, one more thing marks this Jesus off as not just anybody normal, not just another Jewish boy that's born. And it's at this point. He will be virgin born and therefore holy. Mary says to the angel, after hearing these things, verse 34, how will this be since I am a virgin? This helps me understand that at this point, Mary understands what God is saying is about to come true right now. I don't know that if she understood it would happen as the angel is speaking or right after he goes, but she's not thinking, well, of course, I'm engaged to Joseph, we'll get married, we'll have a son, we can name him Jesus. She's thinking, you're talking about right now, aren't you? And it blows her away. And it's similar to what Zechariah did when he heard what the angel said about him and Elizabeth having a son. He answered, well, how can this be? But there's something different in Mary's question. She does not have an unbelieving heart. She just wants to know the, the logistics of how this is going to happen. Right? How is God going to do this? Well, God is not ashamed to tell her what he's about to do, and he delights to take those who humbly approach him and want to know further what God is about, and he gives them answers to help assure their hearts. So the angel says to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. Now, the virgin birth has been rejected and laughed at, and in many cases, even by those who claim to be conservative evangelical teachers, they say that you can be a Christian without believing in the virgin birth of Christ. And to that I say, 
If that's even possible, why would you even want to? God, in his word, reveals what happened. Remember, Luke is recording history. He's telling us the things that happened, that are so. And because our minds can't process it or perceive how it might work, that's God. But even so, Luke records what the angel says, and here is something that can help. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Those are two phrases that go together and are related. One complements the other. On the one hand, you have the Holy Spirit, third person of God, entering into this story now as the one who will make the body for God the Son. But also on the other side, you have God the Father, the Most High, overshadowing Mary. Now, this term is interesting. It was used in the Old Testament as at the tabernacle and temple when God's cloud of glory would descend, signifying God's presence there, that God himself was with his people. Mary would have understood that word as pointing back to the protective presence of God and the most holy of all holy works of God. This would also appear later on as Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration and he becomes glorified and the presence of God overshadows him. What does that mean? What's that mean? It's, it's God signifying, this is my Messiah. I am present in all of his ministry. He is my son. And that's what God said at that point in time. This is my son. Listen to him. In all of the time of the sons coming into the world, we find the Holy Spirit and God the Father with God the Son making this happen. And the miracle of Advent is the formation of the body of Jesus for the eternal Son of God. Do I understand that? I don't. But it's most holy ground. And the significance of this, my friends, First, the sending of Jesus into this world had nothing to do with human manipulation. The sending of Jesus into this world was God's idea and God's work. And this is how God sends his son. He sends his son into the world by his own initiative. And it's similar in a way to what John reveals in John chapter 1. God works this way all the time. It says about Jesus, but to all who did receive him, Jesus, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Now, this is important. Who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John chapter 1, verses 12 and 13. Those who come to God by faith and believe on Jesus Christ are born again, not because they're clever, not because they're smarter than everybody else, 
not because they're more holy than everybody else, but because they believe on Jesus Christ alone and the work that God does to redeem a person on the inside. It's a similar thing to how he worked to form a body for his own son. It had nothing to do with human partnership, the will of a man and a woman together, or all of the clever people in all the world forming up a plan to bring the Messiah. This was all of God. And the virgin birth highlights this for our worship and for our recognition and for our humility. Another thing about this is that Jesus has always been God's son. God, by forming the body for his son in the womb, shows that before time began, God the Son existed and did so eternally with God the Father and God the Spirit. Jesus was not accepted by God the Father at his baptism later on. Before he was even in the womb, God formed the body for him so that he could take on flesh, as we sang about just a little while ago. And thirdly, the amazing thing about the virgin birth is that Jesus is simultaneously 100% human and 100% God. Think about how, as a human, he would have had Mary's DNA. He would have looked, and still looks today, something like his mother. It's amazing when you think about that connection between you and the children that God may have given you. Think about Mary and her delight to think about what God was doing for her. The mystery of it all, but the majesty of this one who is 100% man, but also 100% God, who never knew any trouble, never had any failings, never sinned, but was always perfectly righteous and good, loving, happy, satisfied. He came and became the God-man. 100% God, 100% man, 200%. Not possible in any other thing that I know about. But why is that significant? As man, he sympathizes with us. And he knows what we deal with. He knows pain. He knows temptation. He knows the thoughts that run through our heads. The thoughts of concern and worry. The lustful thoughts. He knows the words that we speak to others and how it damages them. And he sympathizes with us. But as God, he paid the penalty for all the sins, for all the sinners, and calls them to come to him to recognize that he has paid the penalty and that it is finished. This is our God-man. Now, we sing that song, Mary, Did You Know? Maybe not all of that yet, but she knew quite a bit. And that comes in the very last point today. If we're to worship this son, and if we're to receive God's grace, then what should our response be? Verses 36 to 38, it records what Mary says to the angel. Behold, the angel continues, verse 36, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Now in this final section, the key verse, and perhaps the key verse for this whole passage, is what the angel says in verse 37. Look at that again. He says, For nothing will be impossible with God. You want to know how a virgin birth can take place? Because of God. Nothing will be impossible with God. Another translation says it this way, for no word from God will ever fail. No word from God will ever fail. That word, word, is the same as nothing. And it's the Greek word rhema, which can mean word or thing. But in many cases, rhema, the word, is what God is speaking specifically to someone. And Mary is hearing all of this as God's word to her. What is her response? Well, her response is, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. This is a beautiful response. A beautiful response of what God is doing in Mary's heart in that moment crafting and shaping her heart even as he prepares her womb to bear the Son of God. Shaping her heart to trust him. Getting her to the point where the hard word that she hears and the difficulties that are to come, Mary receives it because her faith is in this God of the impossible. God demonstrated his impossibilities He says, your your relative Elizabeth in her old age has conceived and she's now in her sixth month. That would have been revelation for Mary too. No Facebook at that time to announce the birth. There was no reveal party that she was invited to. But now she knows, whoa. And think about the comfort that that would have brought. And this is how God works. He speaks his word and his expectation is that people will obey, that they will believe and that they will obey. But he knows that she needs comfort and assurance that God is already about the impossible. And think about for you, friends, challenged as you may be in the midst of life circumstances right now, wondering what, if anything, God might do. Who might God be pointing out to you to look to who are evidences of his impossibilities? If you're discouraged today, sensing that you are alone, that you're a nobody and that God has not noticed you, remember that he has shown you favor. And where he appeared to you, Christian person, today in this room, he would say, greetings, favored one. I'm with you. He would say, I sent my son for you. And in between his advents, now, Remember to yield to him, bow to him, trust in his goodness. Know that he has revealed who I am. Where on the mountain you could not enter because of the fearsome glory of the Lord. And in the the fiery bush that Moses approached, you could not see the Lord. Now 
in Christ, my son, you can see me. And you can worship and submit your life no matter where you are. And remember that there are others that I'm working in. There are others that because Jesus is no longer in the womb, but has completed his work of sacrifice, death, and resurrection, that we now are seeing people all around us live in the victory, even amidst persecution and suffering and trials and pain. The Lord Jesus has his people everywhere trusting him and obeying him. And look for them. Meditate on where they are. But the point comes to you. Will you receive that word of the Lord? And will you humbly receive God's grace? In humility, will you worship God's Son? And with an obedient heart, will you humbly respond to God's word, even today, not fighting God, not rationalizing his word away, but like Mary, ready to receive it? Will you do that today? That's my prayer for you. And that magic will not be what you look for, but the miracle, the miracle of Advent, our Lord Jesus Christ. Bow with me and let's pray. Our great God, our Father, we thank you so much for what you did to reveal your grace, your Son, and your Word to Mary. We need those same evidences of the miracle today. And I pray that by your grace, you would speak to Christian people here today, that they would be encouraged to look to Christ again and to obey the word, but that those who are lost would see the coming of Jesus as the best thing that ever happened and the miracle that they need in their lives. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.